Today I am joined by Steve Coleman, a man who recently drove to Akron on purpose, Akron, Ohio. <laughs> and uh, sitting next to me, to my left, is Ethan Collins. He is apple pie, he's baseball, he's a pair of Dockers khaki shorts, he's the all-American boy. Hey, Ethan Steve. Collins, ladies and gentlemen. Hey Steve, thanks for having me. <laughs> And sitting across from Ethan is a man who has never been to Akron, Ohio, but he could probably find it on a map, and he believes that LeBron James can, in fact, bring a title to Cleveland if Kyrie Irving can improve his off-the-ball play. <laughs> Sean Glennis, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. <laughs> so, gentlemen, today is it's a very special week. Uh, I'm not sure how you've been spending it. Steve, I know you had a, you had a little road trip, um, mm. which I don't know why you would, you would go on a road trip at a time like this. Um, because you, you really should be, you should be sitting home and just, you know, kind of contemplating and thinking and remembering and, and reflecting uh, a great cultural moment from 20 years ago. Uh, Are you talking about the mask? I am. I am. The, the 20th anniversary of the mask. Never forget. I actually have a bumper sticker on my car that says that. Uh, there's like a little picture of Jim Carrey and it says smoking. <laughs> so yeah, believe it or not, the mask is 20 years old. I hope nobody stops you. <laughs> Oh my god. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> the Mask is 20 years old, which is a movie I think we all remember fondly from when we were like 10. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting thing about that movie is it's widely considered a 90s Jim Carrey classic, I'd say, mm-hmm. when, you, when people go, oh yeah, Jim Carrey, like Ace Ventura and The Mask. That's what mm-hmm. people say. Uh, but then you watch it mm-hmm. again as an adult. And it's a little bit of a different experience. Uh, Sean, I, I know you, you've really dissected the mask over the past few days. You want to you want to talk a little bit about uh, what what you thought of of the mask twenty years later? Yeah, I was really eager to uh, find out whether it really was bad or, or if it was or if it was actually going to be good because I, I really I really wasn't sure. Um, I knew it was kind of like quirky enough that it might have been good, or time might have treated it poorly and it might look like crap. And um, it turned out to be not quite terrible, but. <laughs> But not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it struck me as very of the of of its moment, like not just the '90s, but mm-hmm. of Jim Carrey, 1994. Yeah, um, like Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, and The Mask all came out in 1994, which is kind of incredible. The, the Holy Trinity, some would say. <laughs> yeah, they really all came out in 1994. Wow, yeah. that's ridiculous. Jesus, Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember seeing a trailer for Dumb and Dumber when I saw The Mask in the theater. Wow. <laughs> oh, I did not know that. Well, and speaking of trailers, The Mask has an interesting trailer. And by interesting, <laughs> I mean literally the most 90s trailer I've ever seen in my entire life. Edge City. Yeah. Yeah. Edge City. Stanley Ipkiss is a nice guy. <laughs> but what happens when he finds... A mask. <laughs> it's it's really 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 rough. Uh, yeah. Yeah, one of the weird things um, that I noticed while watching it is uh, uh, I always considered um, Bruce Almighty to be sort of like uh, the a reincarnation of liar liar, but the mask was sort of the precursor to both of those. Like they they all it, it sort of is like the beginning of this weird trilogy about like revenge fantasy of the nerd where Jim mm-hmm. Carrey gets to like beat up bullies and gets the woman and all that type of stuff. Yeah, but, well you make a good point there because uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me, probably the only interesting thing in the movie for me at this point, um, there's a line where Jim Carrey is trying to describe the feeling of wearing the mask and he says it makes you know all your innermost desires become mm-hmm. like reality. Um, so you think of that line. The id. The id, yes, the id. Thanks, Ben Stein. And then you start to think about, okay, well, based on that, what are Jim Carrey's innermost, or Stanley Ipkiss, what are Stanley Ipkiss's innermost desires based on uh, the movie? And it turns out his innermost desires are uh, wearing a yellow zoot suit, dancing, (laughs) and trying to sexually assault Cameron Diaz in a park. (laughs) 
So, you know, just average stuff. I think that's what most of us would do, really, in that case. Well, and then... Most men. The bad guy, uh, whose name I forget... Uh, uh, Dorian. 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 Thank you. Did you watch yeah. it recently or did you just pull that out of your ass? It's so ingrained in my mind. <laughs> Dorian. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dorian. Dorian. Thank you, Steve Coleman. <laughs> the walking IMDb page here. Um, so Dorian puts on the mask and his innermost desire, I mean, he's kind of a dick mm-hmm. and he puts on his mask, uh, the mask and he just continues to be a dick but with a fat head. So to me, his innermost desire is just having Himself. a fat head. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, he's just not repressed. Yeah, I guess not. Yeah. Although he loses his, his he never earring. wears a mask. That's the whole metaphor of the film. <laughs> Dorian's the only real yeah, character. Dorian's the only real guy. He's, he's pure id. I'm, I'm I'm rooting for Dorian. <laughs> no, but uh, also speaking of Dorian um, and other ways that this movie and the other '94 movies are very much alike. Like Dorian is so much like the bad guy in Dumb and Dumber. I thought it was the same actor. <laughs> it turns out not to be. But but uh, all those movies have like the cheesy bad guys or or villains in general mm-hmm. and they have like very poor production qualities and the woman is like sometimes entangled with the villains and yeah they, they definitely mm-hmm. follow a formula that's yeah. that's for sure uh the marketing the movie is kind of interesting too because it's a pg-13 movie mm-hmm. so that says to me not not for not for the kiddies it's for the, for the teens uh but at the same time i remember when i was a, a young man a young boy of ten. Uh, there was there was toys. Uh, a lot of kids got the Halloween costume that year. I did not. Mm. Mom wouldn't let me. Um, Schmoke. And then too much smoking. That's for eighteen year olds. <laughs> Tobacco products for adults. Um, and in, in addition to that, there was also a cartoon which I remember watching religiously in uh-huh. the morning before school. Uh, I did not watch the cartoon. Uh, I, I just want to keep that memory pure for me, unlike the movie. Uh, so yeah, it was weird because it's—I mean, it's—it's it's not a movie for kids, but at the same time, it's clearly marketed for kids. So it's right. like they were trying to double dip in a way. Um, and even the whole movie—it's there's barely any writing. There's just a <laughs> setup, and then it's just like, oh well, the the, the protagonist likes old cartoons, which mm-hmm. were very popular at that point. Cartoon Network was. Right starting to take off and like 50% of their programming was old Looney Tunes and at the same time you had like Tiny Toon Adventures and Animaniacs which all referenced mm-hmm. old like 40s, 50s cartoons. Uh, so basically the mask is just Jim Carrey reenacting cartoon things and then you go, oh yeah, yeah, that was a thing. And then even all of his lines, you know, is just like, oh, Dirty Harry and this and that and yeah. it's just, all he's doing is just quoting things. It's, yeah. It's yeah. And also, it, it's very much like Ace Ventura in the way that it just hides behind the slogan, mm-hmm. like the alrighty then, it's just schmokin', which I didn't remember watching this, <laughs> that schmokin' is the last word in the film. It is. Like, it is. I, I mean, the <laughs> only... He says it without the mask for the first time. Right. Yeah. Right. Because character growth. That's yeah. called a character arc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has nothing to do with the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like a little trademark symbol after he says it in the subtitle? <laughs> TM. you got to have uh, a CH in there, too. It's not small. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's how I've been spelling well, okay. it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, speaking of like all these characters and, and uh, tropes that he goes through, um, that seemed to be the best... The most enjoyable part of it is like like True Lies and like Last Action Hero of the mid '90s. Like it's very metafictional. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Would, it reminded me a ton of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, like, sure. it was it a was, lot. It was like bargain bin Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah, spe- I mean, especially the whole scene with Cameron Diaz in the club, like doing the whole song and dance, and you know, going yeah. up to all the guys. Like it was the same well, thing. When she first meets Stanley, she's wearing this like. Um, this red dress, oh, yeah. it's, it's very Jessica Rabbit-esque. Oh, absolutely. I was surprised no, none of the guys that saw her were talking about her gams. It <laughs> seemed like something that they would have said. Look at yeah. the gams on that boy. Yeah. yeah, there are moments in the movie where it seems to be trying to be like this this throwback to like film noir, mm-hmm. but it seems to be like very in and out of that, and then it slides back into like 90s. Yeah, it won't, it won't really commit either way. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, which, I mean, maybe, I, I've never read the graphic novel. I was going to do that. or I don't, I don't even know if it's a graphic novel. It's probably just a comic book series that it was sure. based on, which I guess is a little bit darker. And if I had to guess, I'm probably more film noir stuff in that and uh, darker tone, less catchphrase-y. 
Presumably, presumably, I don't know. It could be total shit. I don't know. Know. It is just dirty, hairy quotes. Yeah, it's just dirty, hairy quotes. That's all. I, I, on the Wiki, I just went on Wikipedia to look up about the comic, and uh, like, I don't know about the how it is that way, but um, it's definitely a lot darker. But there are like the moments with the balloon animals. Apparently, was one of the two <laughs> things taken from the comics. Oh, and from what I it didn't say from what I read, but. I interpret it meaning he actually, like, in the book, he does that, but he actually kills all the thugs instead. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that kind of difference. Huh. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing, again, it feels very much like a PG kids movie. The only PG-13 uh, moment for me was uh, when Dorian puts on the mask and he, and he like, and his, him and his thugs, they kill everybody inside yeah. of the club. Because yeah. that was the only time you saw blood and people blood, actually yeah. dying and, and things like that. But otherwise, I mean, there's that, and then Cameron Diaz is... Conventionally attractive. Those are your two PG thirteen things that you have going on. Yeah, yeah. That, that um, brings up. I, I watched uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies clip where they talk about the film. I'm sure in they loved it. They did enjoy it, but they still um, argued about Jim Carrey. But uh, Siskel was making a point about how good the supporting cast was, um, which Jimmy. <laughs> when I watched the movie, like. It, it was almost as if there weren't any other actors besides Jim Carrey, but he specifically talks about Cameron Diaz, who was, uh, you know, this is her debut. She was, an, she was a model, and, and she appears on the scene as the femme fatale. And, but in the film, she's, she's not doing very much acting. She's just showing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's all, he also credits the dog. What? Well, that's what I was going to say. That's the only other character who does anything. <laughs> the dog is very cute and very talented, actually. <laughs> Which, if that's what you have for a supporting cast, I don't, I don't, I don't know how that's What about the, uh, yeah, the the police officer and his, uh, his deputy? Doyle! Yeah, Doyle! <laughs> he won't shut up about Doyle. Now, the police officer is featured heavily, heavily in the cartoon. Like, that's he's got his own set of catchphrases. Like, just, yep, just Doyle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, of course, there was a sequel uh, ten years later, and that is the Jamie Kennedy vehicle, uh, Son of the Mask. And have any of you seen Son of the Mask? I have not. Well, count your fucking blessings. <laughs> I sat through that. Um, my girlfriend Amanda, she spent all of 20 minutes in the living room before she just stood up and she literally said, I can't do this anymore. And she just walked <laughs> in the room. She like, Son of a... <laughs> Like, Somebody stop it! It's like no, I have to watch this. It's it's for a very important podcast that like a dozen people might listen to. Um, so some of the mask, it's weird because it's not a sequel, really. It, it's almost like just an alternate take on the same source material. And boy, you really we really appreciate Jim Carrey <laughs> after you watch Jamie Kennedy for like 30 seconds. So Jamie Kennedy is not the son of Stanley Ipkiss. No, which is what I thought coming in. Uh, in <laughs> fact, he's just a guy. Just a dude. And he's, uh, he's not a banker. He's, uh, he's a cartoonist, an underappreciated cartoonist. So this is where we get our cartoon angle so they can still just you know steal things from old cartoons because who wants to write a movie when you can just do the things that other people did? Um... So, yeah, he his dog just finds the mask for him, and then he puts it on, and he goes to a party, and his boss is there, who's played by Stephen Wright, which is really weird, in a very un-Stephen Wright role. Like, I mean, you know, I get the idea of casting him, because he's got, you know, a voice and everything, but that's, I don't know why they cast him. He's not being Stephen Wright at all. He's just... I don't know. It's really, it's really uncomfortable to watch. So Stephen Wright sees him as a mask. He's like, hey, that green guy that you were, that's a pretty, that's a good character. You should make a cartoon. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and so he, you know, he, he starts working on a cartoon, and then um, while he has the mask on, he bangs his wife. Uh, it's not Stephen Wright. Uh, Jamie oh, Kennedy. Oh, okay. <laughs> and there's, uh, and this, this is actually great, because he... he like there's this scene where he like he embraces his wife and he like goes to grab her ass and then it just goes to like uterus cam, so we're inside mm-hmm. of her CGI uterus oh. and then there's like CGI sperm, and if, 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 if the world could see me right now I'm going with this. and then no in in the front of the pack 
are three mask sperms. They're green and they have silly faces. They actually look like, uh, well, I shouldn't say just them because all of the CGI in the movie looks like the, uh, the Mucinex commercials. You know, the booger people? <laughs> That's the basis for the CGI in some of the masks. So, he comes boogers. What's, yeah, he basically comes boogers, yeah. So, his booger load goes into her and, you know, they're silly, they're goofy little sperms and they're goofing in the uterus. Just goofing in the wow. ute. And then, uh... <laughs> <laughs> she has a goof a, in the ute. Just, just, just a goof in the ute. And so she, she gets pregnant. Now, we learn in the original mask that the mask's power comes from the Norse god Loki, who's a little rabble rouser. Thanks again, um, Ben Stein. Yeah, Ben Stein, who is also in the sequel. What? The only recurring huh. character, to my knowledge. Uh, so He had to win that Ben Stein money. Yeah, and there's, there's some bad CGI with him, too, because Loki comes on the scene and... Ben Stein's like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And then Loki, like, takes it, peels his face off and, like, puts it on a stand. It's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> and gross. See, this is way more PG-13 than the original. Yeah. Anyways, I'm going off on a wild tangent here. So, Loki is trying to hunt down the mask baby, who is has, like, inherent mask powers, even though it doesn't wear the mask because it's, was, it's made of mask sperm. And... Loki wants to find the baby so he can find the mask because Odin is mad because the mask is around or something. Uh, so it gets really weird. So, <laughs> wait, so is Tom Hilston in this? Uh, no, I don't. There's, there's, there's a bunch of nobodies. The guy who plays Loki is someone, but I don't know. Alan Cumming. Thank you. Where do you get this? This is amazing. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> it is. It's Alan Cumming. With awesome, like, 90s new metal hair. Like, he looks like that guy in seventh grade that listened to Corn too much. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's awesome. Was he wearing Jinkos? Uh, yeah, he's, he's got a pretty nifty outfit. Um, and he's got, like, little spikies in his hair. He's, he's a fun guy. Uh, so Jamie Kennedy is trying to balance being a dad, making a cartoon, and running from a Norse god. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's, it's horrible. The baby CGI is terrifying. It is horrible. It's very bad. It's very weird. Uh, I urge you to go home, watch some clips on YouTube. It's just unnerving well, watching the baby face. Speaking of the, the CGI, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the computer graphics in the original. It's clearly a highlight of that film. Yeah, it looks okay. I mean, it's a little rough around the edges, but, mm-hmm. again, compared to Son of the Mask, like, the makeup they use on Jim Carrey infinitely better than Jamie Kennedy who has uh, you know what are the, the the boner pill commercials where you have the, the, the family like the Stepford family uh-huh. yeah. Oh, yeah and they're smiling and that's what Jamie Kennedy looks like he just looks like a boner man um. <laughs> also also uh, by far the best part of the film for me um, was a really weird moment where he's like doing this um, western acting thing oh, yeah. uh, I, he's playing like the the woman i don't know on the range or something and then it goes to him like winning the trophy mm-hmm. and then it there's like a front row like mystery science mystery science theater thing mm-hmm. it's very very strange and comes out of left center but i liked yeah. it a lot oh there's some there's some fourth wall breaking yeah. in the mask too a lot of a lot of winking at the camera which mm-hmm. they don't really do much with it it's literally just jim carrey going look how funny i am yeah. that doesn't happen in son of the mask no uh, unfortunately, it, it does not. It's uh, not not as aware, I guess. <laughs> it's it's bad though. And then another great comparison between Son of the Mask and the Mask is um, there's the scene in the original Mask where he you know he gets his yellow zoot suit on, he goes to the club, and he does the whole dance thing, and it's really well coordinated. And uh, there's the, the the scene where Jim Carrey dances with the police officers too, and it's it's technically impressive. Like the fact that Jim Carrey is doing these things, or his stunt double, or whoever, it looks nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the Jamie Kennedy version, they, I, I don't know what it is. It's, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Just look up the dance number, the song and dance number from Son of the Mask. It is painful. <laughs> it is so hard to watch. There's like a rap sequence and a, like, oh, no. it's, yeah, he, 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 he like jumps up on stage and just turns some unsuspecting women into fly girls and it's, it's very odd. And they also do away with the whole, the mask makes you, you know, do whatever you actually want uh, to do thing. Um, it's just, you it turns you into an asshole, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, and the baby, the baby has his own little thing, too. It's uh, a little bit Ally McBeal. He uh, dances, the baby dances around, does the uh, the Hello My Baby, you know, frog thing from Looney Tunes. Uh, he does that, like, 80 times. <laughs> it's great. It's really fun. A lot of fart jokes, if you like fart jokes. 
Pretty All good. Right. Good stuff. Okay. So, yeah, never watched Son of the Mask ever. It is literally <laughs> one of the worst, like, major release movies what I've ever seen. What year was that? Uh, 2004. Okay. So we got ten more years until we do it. Yeah, <laughs> Son of the Son of the Mask. Yeah. Mask 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, fuck Son of the Mask and the Mask. Eh, it's not so good anymore. <laughs> and speaking of... Things that I don't like. Uh, fuck Zach Braff. Let's talk about him. Can we? In fact, let's not talk about him. Sean, why don't you just put on these headphones? I want to I play you a song that's going to change your mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking shins. Is that the Michael McDonald version? <laughs> <laughs> the shins are taking it to the streets. Uh... <laughs> That's what he does. He actually, he actually, she's sitting there with her headphones on, and Zach Braff walks in. He goes, "Hey, you! I'm gonna change your life with any rock." I really wish Zach Braff was obsessed with Michael McDonald instead of. I know, wouldn't that be so much better? Infinitely better. Or like Bruce Hornsby or something. At least it'd be really weird and uncomfortable. Like that would be so much better. Because Zach Braff just, he just sat down. He just like looked directly into the camera and said, "I'm gonna change your life and put on a Bruce Hornsby song." My God. Yes, you will. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I guess I, I wanted to bring that up because um, right now uh, Zach Braff's "Wish I Was Here" um, movie is is coming out, and it's sort of uh, surrounded by this uh, process of the the making, which he kickstarted, and it was sort of this very controversial Kickstarter thing because he's got enough money, and mm-hmm. he's asking other people for money for what's going to be. Most definitely a terrible movie. Um, and then at the same time, uh, Richard Linklater's Boyhood is coming out, and that's also surrounded by process of the filmmaking, but in a very different way. Um, so it took like 12 years to make it, and uh, it's pretty much already like being considered this masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a feeling that a lot of people are considering that way even without seeing it. Uh, so I wanted to talk a, a little bit about um, how process uh, that that surrounds the actual filmmaking changes people's perceptions or um, preconceived notions of a movie. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great point because there, there's so many movies where it's almost like you, you hear more about them before you actually watch them and get to experience them for yourself. Like a movie like Fitzcarraldo, I read about extensively before I actually watched it. And then I watched it once and then a book came out or it's just like Werner Herzog's like giant three hundred page diary of like making making the movie and it, you know details the process and something like that. Um, I, I think it can really enrich the experience because you know you watch it and you're like, wow, he actually dragged a boat up a mountain. That's fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you read the book and it's just like, wow, making a movie like that, it's kind of like dragging a boat up a mountain. And it all just kind of fits together nice. Um, but then you have these Kickstarter movies, and uh, you know Kickstarter is great for a lot of things. But at the same time, it kind of disrupts the relationship between filmmaker and audience because since the, the movie is being funded directly by the audience, they feel like they have a stake in it. Like there's certain expectations that they feel the filmmaker has to make because you donated $10. Uh, so, you know, you, you go on Kickstarter and they have their different tiers. So Zach Braff, you donate $10, you get a picture of Zach Braff taking a picture of himself or something and you donate $1,000 and you get to go on a date with Zach Braff and he can talk to you about how great he is, and then you can go home and watch him masturbate. Um, or go to the theater. Or go to the theater, yeah. It, that's the thing. Why donate $1,000? You can just pay $5 for a ticket and watch him jerk off. Um, but the point is, like, you know, there's, there's a certain degree, like, people are going, well, I live Garden State, so here's $20, you better make a Garden State again. It's like, don't worry, I will. <laughs> but way more self-indulgent this time, guys, I promise. Uh, and, and that, yeah, it, it really alters our expectations. Uh, you know, if, if I go see a shitty movie, um, if I go to the theater and pay $5 and it sucks, it's like, well, I paid my $5 and it sucked and blah, that's it. But when you, when you really invest in something, like, you know, and people do, they'll pay like $50 uh, to get a movie made and then it sucks. Well, then you, you really feel let down. Um, Which, by the way, um, just for the listeners, we're not in Butte, Montana. I don't know where Steve's paying $5 to see these movies. <laughs> Uh, Tuesdays at the Marcus Theater uh, with free popcorn. Thank you very much. You know, but uh, 
Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Fitzcarraldo. though. Um, there was also the documentary Burden of Dreams, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is great. And uh, um, there, there's this uh, really great destroyer line by uh, the songwriter Dan Bahar. Uh, where he says, "Was it the movie or the making of Fitzcarraldo where I learned to love again?" Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's referencing Burden of Dreams or just dragging a boat up the hill. But yeah, yeah. Um, it, I I think that's a great illustration of like sometimes you can enjoy the the process without having it affect um, the actual film. Mm-hmm. Did you see Burden of Dreams before you saw Fitzcarraldo? I saw it after because I saw it before. It definitely affected my viewing of the movie. Which I think goes without saying. But, um, I saw it afterwards, and it, it affected my uh, viewing of the movie after the fact because I was like, "Well, fuck it. Where's Mick Jagger? I want Mick Jagger." And he's like, "It's not in the movie. Come on, <laughs> Jason Robards." <laughs> Can you imagine that movie with Mick Jagger? How great it would be! Like him just on top of the boat while they're dragging up the hill, doing his like chicken strut across the. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, I think we were talking about this before, and, and you mentioned Apocalypse Now, which is another excellent example. Uh, and that's one of those movies where uh, Fitzcarraldo, once you start like getting into movies and you start watching, you know, serious, critically acclaimed things, you, you get to it eventually. But Apocalypse Now is one of those like, oh, you like movies now? Have you seen Apocalypse Now? <laughs> right. Yeah. You turn 14, you watch Donnie Darko, and you think it's the best thing ever, and then you got to go see Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's that one's a bit harder to appreciate in this context because I feel like it's sort of. Um, it's detached from from that process, like the controversial process. That was very much of the moment, like where there were <clears throat> newspaper writers like writing like every week about how it's just going to be this huge failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a problem too, because I mean, when when you read that over and over again, as just you know a, a, a fan of a director or a person who goes to movies, it it starts to sink in. It starts to like beat you down, where you just you, you know, the bar drops, drops, drops. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Smith is a great example too. I think when he made Clerks that came out of nowhere, and all the Gen X people were like, "Finally, someone's speaking our language because our language is like self-indulgent references to nerdy things." And you know, the movie's really talky and it's artsy because it's black and white, and that makes it artsy. And yada yada yada. And then after that, he people start giving him money, and he's just not making Clerks again. He's making you know, <laughs> Jersey Girl. Jersey Girl, exactly. Um, Thank God. But it's weird because it, it, it's a two-way street. It also affects the filmmaker. Uh, again with Kevin Smith he's tried to get serious uh, and kind of branch out and try different genres so he made Red State uh, which is it, it plays it, it's pretty serious throughout the entire thing the tone is very serious and then at the end it's like he, he can't he can't stay serious for the entire movie so at the very end it's, there's just this whole like like thigh smacking yuck yuck moment at the end that is just totally out of sync with the rest of the tone of the movie and he's got a new movie coming out, another horror movie called Tusk, I believe, mm-hmm. which is about uh, the guy from the iPod commercial getting turned into a walrus oh, by an old man. Uh, <laughs> and you watch the trailer, and it's pretty by the books, uh, torture porn, you know, hostile, that that type of stuff. But then there's all these weird, like Kevin Smith one-liner pop culture haha moments that don't make any sense at all, and it just. The, the tone is way off. So he's still trying oh, to gosh. appease to people who are inside of his, the Kevin Smith universe. The view universe. Yes, yes, yeah, the universe. He's, he's <laughs> trying to still reach out to those people, but at the same time, you can tell he wants to make other movies, but he's being held back because he knows, oh, well, I gotta make sure I make a Jay and Silent Bob reference or people aren't gonna pay their, their $5 or 10 or <laughs> wherever you go. I go to the cheap theater. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Any, any other... Uh, Things come to mind for you, Ethan? Uh, well, speaking of Kickstarter, um, mm-hmm. we went to see the Veronica Mars movie earlier this year. We did. I went with you to that. Yeah, uh, our colleague Megan supported that, uh, gave them money, um, and from <laughs> what I can, t-shirt? and I had watched the whole series the previous fall, um, and that I mean that was a movie that I feel like is the director doing what he wanted to do after getting the show canceled, but also completely being like, hey, the fans helped me make this movie. I'm going to do a ton of send-ups. You got all the people that could come back, and, like, there's a ton of moments in there that are all like, hey, you watched the show, right? But, it, like, I loved it because the show is so great. So it worked. Mm-hmm. I thought that Rob Thomas, the creator, did a great job with that yeah. in that respect. Anyway. So it, was a pretty, it was a pretty smooth movie. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> watch it at 3 a.m. if you want. <laughs> You know, my review of Veronica Mars, I said it was just like the ocean under the moon. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, Veron- 
the Veronica Mars Kickstarter uh, series is a really good juxtaposition to the Zach Braff one, where it's um, even though it's still these people who probably have enough money to like finance this, uh, you know, they're celebrities and whatnot. Uh, it's a very communal thing, and it seemed like like I didn't see the the end product, but from what I've heard, uh, the film seemed like it was like giving to that community. Mm-hmm. Whereas Zach Braff is like, give me money so I can like make this grandiose statement of, of the epoch and it's just not what anybody actually really wants or I don't know, maybe yeah. I'm, maybe I'm completely wrong. But No, I, I think I think you're you, you nailed it because if if you've never seen Veronica Mars before, if you've never watched the television series, you can go and watch the Veronica Veronica Mars movie. You're not gonna get all the little references and stuff, but it doesn't derail the film. Um, it still it still works as a standalone movie. You just get like all the little fan service things if you've seen the show and you go ah. ah, ah. Uh, whereas Zach Brown, he doesn't care about any of that. Again, it's just like this is all about me. I'm amazing. I was on Scrubs. Look how cool I am. I was in the X. <laughs> he was in the X. What a what a wonderful career that man has had. And it's and, and you know some people would say oh well you're being cynical and this is more of a criticism of just this one Zach Braff movie and not how he handles things as a whole but there's another Zach Braff movie that's out right now it's called Video Games The Movie uh, because apparently they forgot to change the placeholder title and it is a crowdfunded untitled Zach Braff film <laughs> it's, it's another crowdfunded movie uh, Zach Braff is not he did not direct it He's a producer, executive producer. Uh, his, his friend is making it, or made it, I should say. Uh, but basically, the movie, it's, it's just a commercial for the AAA video game industry. They're just like, look at how cool video games are. They don't say anything. It's just like, there's video games, look at them. And then there's interviews with uh, Zach Braff, other guys from Scrubs, and just like all their <laughs> friends in a room. So it's basically, if someone handed us you know, millions of dollars and said, hey, talk about video games for a little while. <laughs> and that's that's pretty much what it is, and it, it's it's a colossal failure because it's completely self indulgent and it kind of misses the point of a documentary. I mean, what's the point of a documentary? Your subject, not you. Mm-hmm. Which is why Michael Moore movies can be so insufferable because even if I agree or disagree with his points, it doesn't matter because at some point it becomes about you know, hey, look at me, I'm Michael Moore. And he's a good fat guy voice. <laughs> <laughs> Practicing in the mirror. I stuff a pillow on my shirt. We <laughs> can really method on that. <laughs> but yeah, it's... I don't know. Anyways, moving on from Zach Graff. There's another special anniversary this week, guys. Very special anniversary. About a movie that was real. Did you know that sometimes movies are real? Uh, it's called uh, The Blair Witch Project. Are you familiar? And speaking of documentaries. <laughs> yeah, speaking of documentaries. Let me, let me tell you. Wasn't that Earl Morris? Didn't he do uh, Blair Witch Project? Yep. Uh, Yeah, so Blair Witch is 15. Why is that relevant? Well, one, it makes you feel old because, you know, we can do the whole thing. I remember that came out. Gee whiz, I'm sure you're getting old now. Uh, Other than that, it was really the first time that we experienced the whole found footage phenomenon. Now, it wasn't the first found footage movie. There's a couple before that. Hmm. There's... One about a family that gets attacked by aliens, but it looks like shit. Not that Blair Witch doesn't look like shit, but that's a whole other story. Uh, there's another one about the Jersey Devil that somebody made. I can't think of the name of it right now. A couple years before Blair Jersey Witch. Jersey Girl? Yeah, Jersey Girl. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. Uh, <laughs> isn't that one about a baby and a dead mom? <laughs> Who become resurrected as a monster that terrorizes a <laughs> suburban New Jersey town. Played by J-Lo. <laughs> yeah. So in the Blair Witch, uh, people were idiots back then, apparently. And they thought that it was real. They genuinely believed that what they were watching is real. Which is kind of fucked up because that means that like, working adults, presumably with like, high school diplomas and, and shit, thought that it was okay to uh, show people actually getting murdered for money in a theater. Which is kind of weird. Uh, but the most interesting part about Blair Witch, for me at least, is not the movie, which is kind of neat, but how they marketed it. So before they even made the movie... They made a website in, like, 1997 or something. So this is, you know, the Wild West days of the Internet. There's not a, you don't have Wikipedia. You, you can't check sources as well, things like that. So there's this website where it just chronicles the history of the Blair Witch, which doesn't actually exist. So there's this, this document out there. The movie comes out, and people who have the Internet, they go to their AOL dial-up, and if they search for the Blair Witch, this comes up, and it looks like 
it's like a historical documentation of all these huh. things that actually happened. So if people actually put in the time to try and research this thing, they would think that it was actually real. Uh, after the movie came out, actually slightly before, the three people that made the movie, they kind of went into hiding and they posted flyers all over the place of their disappearance. <clears throat> so people actually thought that they were dead, which is kind of fucked up again. And then the way that the movie was marketed, it was uh, it started off very, very small. It only released in like 50 theaters or something like that, but they advertised heavily. So it became this thing like, oh, it's very exclusive. You're going to want to see this. This is totally fucked up. you got to see this stuff. And then it just kind of exploded from there. Um, but one of the things that Blair Witch did was, aside from being you know, brilliant marketing, it kicked off this whole uh, found footage phenomenon. And... Uh, that's that's pretty interesting too because if you think about it, when Blair Witch came out, it's got this great formula. You make a movie for zero dollars basically, and then you make two hundred and fifty million dollars. That sounds like a good investment to me. But in reality, we had to wait years and years and years and years before they actually tried to do this shit again with like Paranormal Activity. Um, and I think one of the problems <laughs> for me, at least, and I can see why maybe this is why they didn't embrace it uh, completely. Blair Witch kind of seemed like lightning in a bottle because when you make a found footage movie, you're introducing the idea of the camera existing, which is kind of a, a weird concept. When you watch a regular movie, you know, I mean, I guess in the back of your head, you know, well, a camera is filming this and it's fake, but you, you don't consciously think about it. The camera is the star of a found footage movie. So not only do you have to suspend your disbelief that there's a magical witch killing people or paranormal activity, there's a ghost going boo and staring at you by the side of your bed or whatever the fuck happens... Uh, <laughs> you also have to deal with the fact that this is a place where a camera should be and, and someone's always and someone's always documenting uh, which is very problematic uh, in the paranormal activity movies it, and, and a lot of found footage movies it works to varying degrees so in the third paranormal activity movie it's it takes place in the 80s and the guy doing all the, the shooting he's like a, a wedding video guy so he has cameras around. It makes sense that he would do these things. And they have all these ingenious ways of incorporating cameras. So, like, he breaks apart an oscillating fan and sticks a camera on it. So you get this cool, like, <laughs> oscillating uh, fan camera and, you know, things so, like this. So they gave him videographer skills just to, like, improve the aesthetics of yeah, the Yeah, because, because they're, well, pretty much, they were conscious of the fact that, like, okay, this is stupid. Why would someone carry it's a camera clever. around all the time? We need to have motivation for this because otherwise it doesn't work. And that was one of the biggest problems with the second one, the one that came before that, is it's just a family in a house and then the, the scary monster kills them. But the entire time you're thinking, why am I seeing this? Like, why do they have, like, security cameras just, like, pointed at the middle of their living room? Like, who the fuck does that? We're, <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, so it's, it's, it's always really, really weird. And it's, yeah. it's kind of a hard thing to tackle. And I think the, the easiest way to deal with it, and Ethan, you, you really like, uh, what's... Grave Encounters. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's that's another one where it's it, a TV it, show. No, it's a movie. It's that a movie about out. a fake TV show. Nice. Where, like a know, ghost, people... ghost hunting show, and uh, they go. It's like one of the episodes. They go to this insane asylum, and it's actually haunted. And they get. It's really good. The beginning is really cool because they're going out interviewing people, and they go up to the gardener, and he's just like, "No, like I don't know anything. I don't think." And they're like, "I right, just give him like twenty bucks. Have him say something on camera for the show." It's really, it's good, but it's also genuinely terrifying as well. Yeah, huh. and and they they nailed the aesthetic of like you know the Ghost Bro shows where they just you know show up in some old house and like, "Come on, man, come at me! Yeah. You hung yourself in eighteen ninety two, bro," <laughs> and they expect you know. <laughs> him to drop a cup on the ground or something because that's what you do mm -hmm. yeah yeah it, it's sort of gotten out of hand um not not just in like the horror genre but like um end of watch for instance mm -hmm. uh, michael peña um, <laughs> movie with uh jake gyllenhaal and uh where, where they're cops but that's another like found footage but but they they sort of like forget like they just want the aesthetics of found footage but they don't like want to like I don't know. Have have a an assistant on the side that makes sure the logistics are are right. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're watching the camera that that is showing the phone footage, and sometimes you're watching a camera that moves the same exact way, but it has the phone footage camera in the foreground. Yeah, and it, it starts to like be this omniscient found footage camera. <laughs> uh, this the same thing happened um, in the U.S. office. Uh, the British office did like a really good 
good job of uh, it being like uh, you know a mockumentary where the camera was always accounted for and it, yeah. it added some tension as the show went on and then um, the U.S. office once again just wanted that aesthetic but they didn't want to like keep tabs for nine seasons mm-hmm. about what the cameraman's doing and then all of a sudden in what season eight or something like that the guy comes out from behind the camera <laughs> it's very weird it's like hey you remember yeah. this well and because the u.s office was so wildly successful you have all these shows that are kind of cut from the same cloths so you get parks and rec and you get uh brooklyn nine 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 and they do the same thing but i I don't know if do, do either one of those shows address the fact that it's like shot in this documentary style. Or, I mean, are we supposed to think that there's an actual documentary crew there, like with The Office? Presumably? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I can't think of a moment where it's like that. They could be wrong. I don't think they fully acknowledge it in Parks and Rec, but I think at least that that knowledge is there since there's those talking head shots of them doing interviews. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost just like, oh, you guys all watch The Office, so you know how this shit works. And they address just the deal. camera too. Usually, they kind of you know they do the. For those listening, it's me just kind of rolling my eyes. <laughs> Doing the, the gym. gym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think uh, now the um, the multi-camera sitcom setting, something like, like the Cosby Show or Seinfeld, like, I think that's almost <clears throat> internalized as being like an old old person sitcom now. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is the, the, the broadcast show that's on like after Jeopardy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so does that mean we're not going to have any more sitcoms that look like the Big Bang Theory, Sean? Is that... <laughs> How I think, sad. Um, Mulaney, that's coming out in the fall, I think is doing multi-cam. Oh, nice. I'm pretty sure. On Fox. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, new content on the website and things we have upcoming. So, Ethan, you just came out with an article about MTV's The Challenge. So I, I was wondering if, if you could answer the question on all of our listeners' minds. Uh, is MTV's The Challenge the best show on MTV called The Challenge. Would you, in fact, call it the <laughs> Citizen Kane of shows on MTV called The Challenge? I mean, far none, easily. <laughs> Within that criteria, I think it fits perfectly. Yeah, um, It might even be the best show on MTV, period. Okay, well, I, that's it's, believable, too. Oh, Are, all time? No, right now. Oh. It's oh, also, the, on, to you, it's on, it's also on, the only MTV show I watch, so that's my uh, opinion <laughs> might be skewed on this, but, yeah. Megan is somewhere off... Probably miles away screaming about Teen Wolf. Yeah, screaming, but also like having, I don't know, she has a weird relationship with that show. Okay, Um, so talk to me about the challenge, because I don't watch that shit, so I don't know what the hell it's about. You don't don't know anything about the challenge? No, I'm I'm guessing there's a a, a challenge. Is there a challenge? You want challenges? Oh, man. Um, So basically, it started out as the real world road rules challenge way back on the early aughts. Where they would get a bunch of people who were on the real world, a bunch of people on road rules, and they would bring them to some location, Mexico or whatever, and they compete in a challenge against each other as two teams, and then they would uh, have eliminations, and one person goes home, and then they whittle it down until they have a final challenge, and they compete for all the money. Fair enough. So it's it, it's in the same vein as like all those VH1 shows where it's just you know competition-based reality, right? Yeah. So what what separates the challenge from the rest of the pack? The challenge is just the cast they get. Because, I mean, you get these 18 to 22-year-old people that are already willing to go in the real world, mm-hmm. film a whole season in the real world, put their lives on TV, get done, and say, you know what, I want to definitely do that again. And they go back and they do these challenges and they just get in, they get so much alcohol in these houses. <laughs> they, I've read so many times with interviews from these people and they're just like, yeah, they, there's a lot of alcohol. Like production basically just shoves <laughs> it at them oh, so they can drink. And because that's when the stuff goes down, you know, they have these huge parties and everybody just gets in fights because they all are, have these egos and they're all narcissists and they all want the attention of the camera. Yeah. So this whole thing... And it's interesting because the challenge because it happens every year and you can get invited back and you only get invited back as if you're really good or you're really interesting so these people go on the show knowing we're like I have to be interesting so I get camera time so I can come back on another one to try and win more money so they just kind of one up each other with being horrible people so yeah kind of interesting yeah they're all they're all pretty bad at least they can be painted that way I mean there's some people that you enjoy watching but they're all yeah they can be terrible people at a lot of times I can, I can understand the appeal because I I I like watching terrible people do terrible things when mm-hmm. I can judge them from far away. Uh-huh. But like, I, I don't like it when it's it's really close to me. Like when I see douchey people at work being horrible and they're like three inches away from my face, 
Oh, that's yeah. that's hard to deal with. But <laughs> if I can watch those same people like fall down and, and act like assholes and uh, get arrested, you know, through my television, that's yeah. that's much more appealing. Oh, so yeah. Like, oh, yeah, fuck you, buddy. I was gonna say, <laughs> how are you handling it now, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> Going great, thanks. Why, why did they rebrand it as the challenge? Uh, because I'm pretty sure I don't know the definite reason, but road rules stopped being uh, a thing. Okay, um, and so they lost a lot of like their talent pool was real world and road rules, so they could call from both shows. And then the road rules ended, and so they only had real world to come from. And then so they they've had two seasons actually where they they call them fresh meat seasons where. A veteran from the challenge is paired up with a brand new person that has never been on either Real World or Road Rules. And so it's two-person teams. And so that new person then comes into the pool of players that can be picked. And there's a lot of people that have come from the Fresh Meat seasons that have actually become, like, big names in the challenge. How far back do they go? Like, does this turn into the geriatric challenge where someone from, like, 1992 who's, like, pushing 50? It's interesting. The very first challenge season was just called uh, Real World All-Stars. And that is from the late, like, 98 or 99. And then it doesn't... Circus Smash Mouth. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, And the first, like, first, like, three seasons are just, um, it's like a road rules-esque thing where they are all traveling to different places and competing, but they're still competing against real world versus road rules. It's not until, like, the fifth season where it's uh, Battle of the Seasons when they actually just go to one location and do, uh, like, a challenge. And then they, from there on, it's just one place, everybody competes here, and, oh, and then the age thing, it's interesting, there was, Mark Long is one of the, like, most famous challengers who was on the very first season of Road Rules, and he was competing, like, even a few years ago into his 40s on this show. Jesus. Yeah. Was, was he getting drunk and yelling at people, too? Or was he, like, the dad? Yeah, but by the end, he was like, uh, I'm kind of, you know, I've been here, done this so many times, where it's like, I... I'm okay. Hey, it's 8 o'clock. Well, and, but, well, the weird thing is, too, it's not it's not that at all. It's just, he is, he's super jacked still. Like, because oh. like, they all work out a ton well, in between course. the shows to compete. And so, yeah, even on his last season, he was ripped. And so, it's, yeah... So you got all these, in the older seasons, there were people that didn't work out at all. Now it's, you have to work out or you're not going to be able to come back. So these are all terrible human beings, but we like to watch them act terrible and narcissistic and and awful. Mm -hmm. So this raises another question, going back to our discussion earlier. If Zach Braff stopped making movies and we could just watch a reality show where he was just in love with himself and being a Project Greenlight Zach Braff? (laughs) Yeah, Project Greenlight Zach Braff. I would would love that. That would be my favorite show, I think. Yeah, me too. Um... Steve, you got you still working on your taco piece? Still working on my taco. Non edible taco piece. Non edible taco. The, the international sensation taco. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be. Would you say this is gonna be the biggest uh, taco expose in the history of the internet? Oh, no, it will be. <laughs> Probably be the. It's really fucking hard to research this thing. By the way. Yeah, there is very little about taco out there. Maybe, maybe she'd get on the, the taco forums and uh, try to talk <laughs> to the taco heads out there. He has one it's website. The Tacoholics. <laughs> <laughs> the Taco Maniacs. Taco heads. The Taco heads, yeah. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Sean, what are you working on right now? you got a bunch of shit going. You're Mr. Production over here. Um, I'm trying to turn Optimism Vaccine into the newest empire in listicles. Uh, I just uh, put up a Desert Island doo-wop piece, very small piece. It's just practically, or basically, um, seven of my favorite doo-wop songs. Um, In case you're bored and you work at a computer. Um, And then I have a piece uh, about the mask that's um, coming out uh, alongside this podcast. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Is Optimism Vaccine the new BuzzFeed, Sean? (laughs) Not yet. I always <laughs> thought of us as more of an upworthy. Um, I also have a very if you special... you like doo-wop, just wait. <laughs> you won't believe. And then I heard the, th- the third song, and my jaw dropped. Um, I also have a very special top ten list coming out soon. Um, it's, it's going to be one for the ages. I think it's... Maybe, maybe BuzzFeed will pick it up. Uh, I'm, I'm currently in the process of uh, chopping up a Scott Walker song so I can use it Ooh. in the... Uh, in the top ten. Because nothing says fun top ten like the sound of a pig being slaughtered. I've always found Yeah, this is not this is not Wisconsin Scott Walker. No. 
No, this is not. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great, too. It's just top ten cool things Scott Walker, the governor, says. No, we're talking about uh, the former crooner turned completely insane guy. I don't know what he's doing right now. He's an Ohio boy, right? Yeah, I think he's from Ohio. You insane. would know. Mm-hmm. I know he's he's actually he's working on an album right now with the band Sun, which is they're they're like a doom band, which they basically just play like three chords <laughs> per song, and each song lasts eight minutes. He uh, like echoes in the background. Yeah, it's like the quest for the brown note, and then so I'm <laughs> guessing like it's just gonna be like, and then Scott Walker's gonna be like, oh, 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 oh. that's kind of what he does. Okay. And then you know, sounds of animals being slaughtered. So I'm working on that. Uh, I also went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy last night, which was. Pretty good, pretty good, pretty, pretty good. And I'm going to have a 60-second review of that up soon. Uh, it's it's a Marvel movie. It's fine. It's uh, got the same problems as a lot of good Marvel movies. Basically the same problems as the Avengers, almost, except it's a little bit more disadvantaged because, you know, with the Avengers, there's not a lot of character development, but at the same time, they kind of expect you to go in, you know, after seeing the 8,000 other Marvel movies where this is just like, hey, you heard of this? No? Okay, well, we're not going to develop the characters, but don't worry, it's fun. Uh, so yeah, a lot of fun, very charming, well-paced. Uh, John C. Riley's in it. That's pretty cool. There's a raccoon with guns. Okay, uh, so before we wrap this up, we're going to go through our recommendations for the week. Uh, so we're, we're all going to... How, how are we going to do this? What, we should have a name for this. Why don't we have a name for this, Sean? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Basically, it's just uh, we're, we're each going to name something um, of pop culture importance that, that we've enjoyed uh, since the previous podcast. <clears throat> All right, and we'll think of a really catchy name for it. Yeah, um, mine would be um, on cinema, a web series uh, with T- Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington. Uh, just came back for I don't know its fourth season. Um, there's it's a weekly show on YouTube, and they're they're like eight minutes long approximately, and it's basically a riff on the uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies. Um, but much different. Uh, and, really? Uh, it, it's 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 a very dry satire, as as you would expect from Tim Heidecker. Uh, and and it, there's definitely a shtick going on where they play on, on on the characters that they each play. But but it keeps evolving and it, it keeps being um, interesting and and uh, it can be it can be very silently biting. Um, and I I would check that out. Awesome. Now Tim Heidecker, he's got like. I don't know if he's broken it down to a web series or if it's coming out as like a movie, but he's making like, uh, it, it looks like an 80s direct-to-video action film. I think it's called Decker. It stars <laughs> him and a man who we mentioned on our last podcast, Joe Estevez, personal yeah, favorite of mine yeah, from Roller Gator. De- Decker is actually in the uh, On Cinema universe. Really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a thing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steve, what do you got? I've been watching uh, on YouTube episodes of VH1's Bands Reunited, which was a series like in the early Ooh. 2000s where they basically charge into some old pop star's office, and they're always like from the 80s. Yeah. They're just barging their office saying, hey, you were in uh, fucking ABC, you should get back together, here, sign this record, and they like try to organize this one-time-only reunion. Be Flock of Seagulls again, come on! Flock of Seagulls is actually an episode. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I watched the Information Society episode. How that go? Um, it's interesting if you can do research on it. That's, this is like a really shitty thing. <laughs> that's like all I've done the last week that's new. But uh, the lead singer of Information Society basically agrees on camera to do the reunion, but backs out the last minute. Oh, what but he has an entire blog post about it. Like if you go on Wikipedia, look up Bands <laughs> Reunited. Read his blog post about his experience, and then you can find the episode, I think, like in four pieces on YouTube. And most of the other episodes of the entire series are on there. And it's a very odd series. Interesting. Uh, I remember that show because I watched one episode when it was, like, actually on VH1, and I had no idea who the fucking band was. Which seems to be a trend because I'm only, I'm, I'm like, barely familiar with the Information Society at this point. Yeah, the well, band was. You shouldn't uh, be that familiar with them. No, <laughs> uh, what, what were they called? I know they had a they had a woman who sang, Romeo Void. That would be the band. Yeah, what what 
Yeah, a lot of one-hit wonders that they wind yeah. up. I think it's just because they can't think of anybody else. It's like, well, these people will be easy to find. They're probably just mm-hmm. working at an office, like in uh, Sacramento. <laughs> Let's go get them. Yeah, with Romeo Void, I mean, I, I had never, I had never heard of them. And then the host was super into it. Like you could tell, like he wanted to do this yeah. entire show so he could get Romeo Void together. And then I can't remember if they reunited or not. But the only other time I, I ever heard Romeo I think Void. They did. Was uh, on, on the XM radio channel. Uh, it's called like the, it's like the New Wave channel or something. I saw there was a Romeo Void song in there one time. So yeah. that's that's Romeo Void. I will, I will say Romeo Void's okay. Actually, <laughs> Never Say Never was a pretty good song. Good to know. Is it worth getting them back together? Probably. No. Well, they're not doing anything. I mean, Office in Sacramento. Ethan, what do you got? Uh, I recently purchased the newest album from the Old Crow Medicine Show. Came out on July first, I think, of this month. Uh, or last month now that it's August 1st uh, I'm a big fan of the band have all a room motherfucker yeah um, <laughs> see uh, take that yeah so yeah I like the, them a lot mm-hmm. um, the album is great a lot of good songs there's actually a new um, Bob Dylan collaboration type thing because Wagon Wheel was a Bob Dylan thing that Catch the Core, the lead singer of OCMS, took out and redid, and Bob Dylan let him have it, and that's one of their biggest hits. And this one, uh, I read about Bob Dylan sent Catch, like, here's a couple bars of this song that I did a while ago, see if you can do anything, when they turned it into a song called Sweet Amarillo, and it's pretty good. Uh, I think they're kind of pushing it as, like, the single of the album. So that's good. There's a couple other good songs. I like their bluegrass stylings. Um and it's yeah, it's a good time. I think their last album, "Carry Me Back," is a little bit better as a whole, mm. but this is still enjoyable. This is actually their first album since they. The band has gone through a lot of incarnations, but one of the other catches the lead singer. But there's also another guy, Willie Watson, who was with the band from the beginning, who also sang a lot of songs. But the, he left the band before this album came out, so it's a little, it's a little different if you know the mm-hmm. band and not hearing his distinct voice. In you there. truly are the all American boy. I love. Yeah. That's incredible. You you also saw uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's Swan Song. Is that something you can recommend? Uh, a Most Wanted Man. I did go see that. I would recommend it if you enjoy Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's the best part of the movie. He's he's great in it as the lead. It's I mean it's a cool spy novel or movie novel turned into a movie, um, and it's set in Hamburg and it's kind of really interesting looking. It's filmed there. Mm-hmm. It looks really good. It's well done. The story's like, okay, whatever. It's just a si- very simple. Same guy that did uh, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, other things? It's the same uh, author, John LeCare, uh, wrote, bo- wrote originally both of the stories. Okay. Uh, the director is the same guy who did The American with George Clooney, Anton Corbin. Okay. Serious question. Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Boy, right? Spy. Spy? I think. <laughs> Fuck. Soldier okay. Boy. Is that, the, that might be the porn so, parody. Soldier Boy told you. You're thinking of... Uh, I thought it was weird. Why is it boy? Oh, <laughs> you're thinking of the classic doo-wop song, Soldier Boy. Yeah. <laughs> Crank that. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> or Soldier Boy, yeah. I guess. Wait, it is Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Right? <laughs> soldier. Soldier. Oh, that's where I yeah. was confused. S-O-U-L-J-A. Because mm-hmm. he... Yeah, Superman. That how? Yeah. Yep. Um... <laughs> Steve, what do you got? Uh, I've got a video game for you, boys. Oh, it's called Mount Your Friends, and uh, it is available on the is Xbox. This, is this VR? Games. Yeah, it's, it's real. <laughs> what you do is you is you find some people, you make them your friends, and then you roll around in the grass with them. Uh, no, actually, what you do is you you can either get this game through the Xbox Live Indie Channel. I'm guessing it's like a dollar on there because almost everything on the Indie Channel on Xbox Live is a dollar, uh, or you can get it on Steam. It's twenty percent off this week. It's like three ninety nine. Uh, Pretty simple game, works well in multiplayer. I think you can only play multiplayer, actually, either local or online. What you do is you control these uh, muscly men, and there's a goat in the middle of the screen. And each one of the face buttons on your Xbox controller controls a limb. So, like, Y is the right arm, X is the left arm, and then leg, leg. And you use the buttons to move the arms and legs, and it's got this physics engine, so you have to crawl, and you crawl over to the goat, and you position yourself on the goat. And you have 60 seconds to climb up onto the goat. Now the next guy goes, and he has 60 seconds to climb the goat, and climb on top of you, (laughs) and get on top of you. So you just go, and you build, and you build, and you build, and you try and see who can make it to the top within 60 seconds and still get higher than everyone else. You just go back and forth. Uh, It's a lot of fun. Sounds like cheerleading. It is a lot like cheerleading. And my favorite part is it's got this fun physics engine, 
and they fully animated the dongs on these guys, so they're muscle men in like uh, speedos. <laughs> but the dong animation is they just they, they when they when I say they fully animated it means they like gave them full physics without like considering how wiener physics work in the real world. So your dong just spins around like the hands on a clock. So they just have these big like elephant trunk wieners that are just swinging around and you're just like cartwheeling over people on top of the goat. Your wieners all over the place. It's a lot of fun. Yours doesn't do that? Not not all the time. You know, ex- except for, you know, when, when I'm, I'm walking down the street and somebody goes, hey Steve, and I turn around and I take off my sunglasses. I go, yeah. And they go, put it in a windmill mode. And then I drop down. <laughs> <laughs> So on that note, uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks, maybe. Sean's going on vacation because he's a bougie motherfucker. He has to go to San Francisco. Uh, But we're going to figure out how to get things together. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back eventually.